Okay. Let me move this up a little bit. That's a little better. So we'll start with a little bit of a writing exercise. So um, hopefully we have writing implements nearby and paper. So <clears throat> we lost some folks who are off getting paper. Have some people who don't have their video turned on. Let's see. Okay, so uh, we're going to take just a, a few minutes and think about any one of the precepts we've studied and reflect on it for about five minutes. And then it might be one that you learn the most from or one that gives you the most difficulty or one that you're curious about exploring further. Um, and so you're gonna reflect on it and then you're gonna express that precept in your own words as it appears to you, as it, uh, as it comes from you. Um, and then um, uh, a little bit of a reflection about it, what it, what it is that makes it uh, intriguing or interesting or um, difficult or challenging for you. So now we've studied almost the, all the precepts. Uh, so one so far that's, uh, that's you'd like to explore a little bit in writing, okay? So just reflect for a little bit and then when you're ready to start writing, go right ahead. have about 15 minutes or so for this.
Peg, what was the second half of the question? Um, <clears throat> so, uh, first, uh, express it in your own words, and then um, just reflect about what you've discovered in working with it. What, like, what you could just describe the, what the difficulty is, or what the challenge is for you, or you might have uh, some additional thoughts about how that gets resolved. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to unmute everybody. And um, um, yeah, so I was thinking you might want a, a chance to discuss this in maybe some really small groups, two or three people. Would that be a good idea, do you think? Yes. So I can make breakout rooms to, to make that happen if you. If you'd like to just talk for a few minutes, just um, reflect about what it is that you discovered in the writing about it. So let me create some breakout rooms. Uh, yeah, you'll be with one other person. Were you guys in a group? You and Nelda? 
<laughs> yes, it was great. <laughs> oh, good. How are you? I'm good. Me and Miriam had a good talk too. It was nice. Where is everybody? I don't know. Are they still in their groups? Maybe they're waiting for the minute timer to run out. Oh, yeah, the, the timer's going down. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this technology. <laughs> what good fortune that if this virus, if this pandemic had to exist now, that we have all of these tools. I mean, it's just. I know. We're. we're... <laughs> We're equipped, and a lot of people who were very um, Zoom phobic have become, you know, accomplished Zoomers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what did you discover? Did you all have the same exact same precept? <laughs> Well, I think one of the things we were just that's top of mind for me is we were just kind of talking about is this it, it reminds me of the those two uh, Chinese um, characters that are there in the Zendo where it says love and practice and mm -hmm. the and it's just that really deep focus on the love aspect of that because we sort of have a tendency to be intellectualized things sometimes and just like a refocus on the beauty of uh, heartfelt warmth and connection that is just goes so far in so many ways, so much more multifarious than sometimes an intellectual uh, perspective can take us. So. Yeah. Yeah, especially when thinking about the precepts, because we can have a very analytical approach or a very um, kind of academic approach to the precepts. And they're really uh, about this heart connection with life itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I think that my partner and I were um, during the breakout session, we're talking about what the things that uh, get in the way of that heart connection. Yeah. And, it, and it, it, it reminded me of a conversation we were having during the integrative intensive on the Brahma Viharas, how compassion and sympathetic joy were difficult for people. And, it seemed like a common thing to me at the time uh, that we actually, I think as a group ended up working through, but it, the self-centered dream was a, a big, a big hindrance to, yeah. to, to, to cultivating that, that warmth. That yeah. <clears throat> so do you mean like being more other, other oriented with with when you say that in that way uh more um i guess it's 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 kind of getting out of um, out of your own way 
um, and you know, not making the like my the preset that I've had difficult with and have thought about through this last few months is the the, the way of speaking of others with openness and possibility is kind of a, a tough one for me. And because and I, and I don't know why it's kind of it, it's embarrassing, but um, it seems like like I like oh man this person isn't doing you know isn't acting like I want them to act. There's a, or there's there's they offended me in some way. Um, some sort of I involved a yeah. lot of times. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that's very, very important uh, because that is, a, uh, that is a consideration in all of the precepts since they're all, they're all relational, right? They all have to do with our relationship with other people. None of them are solitary. So it's not even like you can go fix yourself, um, but you need occasions to practice. And all of the people who offend us and make us aggrieved and all of that, they're, they, they're uh, our helpers in that, actually. So the people who make us impatient are the trainers and patients, right? Mm -hmm. Without that training, we don't have any opportunity to grow. So this is why, you know, it says in uh, Bodhisattva's vow that we should bow down, you know, and with, with uh, appreciation for those people who aggravate us, right? In one way or another, or even become sworn enemies because they reveal things about our, uh, our conditioning and our limitations and the stories that we tell about ourselves. And so it's, it is really important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And since we, we do want to train, we need opportunities, right? <laughs> Fortunately, the world is generous in providing opportunities for training. <laughs> Very generous. Yeah. Yeah. I, something, I was Matt's partner. So we were talking about this together. And we came at it through the lens of two different people both ended up talking about um, the self-centered dream uh -huh. and that the, the hindrance of that. Um, but you speaking now, Peg, just reminded me that even we were talking about it maybe in a self-centered way where we were kind of disparaging ourselves or I feel like I was in my, when I was going through it for think, you know, oh, I am so self-centered. I don't think about other people. <laughs> um, which is kind of ironic. Um, it is, isn't it? Yeah. It's comical, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, that's yeah. I was still tied up in that. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting when you, when you start practicing in this way, there are a lot of things that strike you as really funny that you've been doing that you've just sort of taken for granted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anything else anybody noticed or wanted to report? You know, I, I, I picked the same um, precept as, as, as Matt there. I take up the way of speaking of others with openness and possibility. And, um, you, you know, <clears throat> there's so much in that, in that precept that she writes about 
that I re- resonate with about freezing a person and um you, you know i um okay. you know you you talked about having a lot of opportunities to practice and you know unfortunately i've been doing the opposite of practicing the precept lately <laughs> with the current administ- federal administration in particular a few different officials um and um my my partner asked me, well, have you applied the stop, look and listen, respond to to this um, to this situation? And, and honestly, I have it. You know, um, I um, it's sort of making me think a lot deeper about my response to it lately, but. You know, I've been I've been trying to work on how do I how do I uh, change the conversation, not only with others but but mainly with myself about it. You, you know, mm-hmm. can 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 I view myself with openness and possibility so I don't so I don't do the same thing over and over again, right? <laughs> Expecting different results. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's very important. Also, thinking of yourself with openness and possibility, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not a closed book. Yeah. And as far as, you know, uh, remote people, people we don't have actual contact with, um, there's, not, there's not an opportunity to practice with that, right? Um, other than to notice, oh, I, it's easy for me to make negative projections of people who have no opportunity to respond, you know? <laughs> right, right. And, and at the same time, we have to acknowledge the truth of the ways that people have harmed each other and the ways that people have created, you know, um, destructive situations that we, we have to be honest about that. But there has to be an understanding of if you if you look at an infant, you see that an, an infant is not born that way. Everybody's a product of the causes and conditions that they've encountered and the interpretations they've made of those. So you start to see this isn't a, just a, you know, this person's a butthead. This is like a whole, um, there's a whole history there and it goes back at least seven generations. So you begin, you start to see, oh, when I speak of someone in the, in the way that closes down the richness of the context in which all of this is happening, um, then I've really limited things. And most often what I, I think we end up doing is, even with the people we're most intimate with, we end up um, like creating a cartoon in our head that's a two-dimensional cartoon of the person, and then we interact with the cartoon. Yeah, so I do that all the time. Yeah, it's very I, common. I mean, seriously, I, I do that with my dad, right? I mean, and like you said, he, and it's this conversation about me trying to persuade him about his current political views or not right. in line with certainly mine but you know can't you see the harm can't you see the harm in the view you have you know and like somehow i'm going to convince him of that yeah and i have that whole conversation with that inner parent in my head and then like you said then when they're they're live and in front of me wow and they're responding like whoa this is not who you are in my head <laughs> that's right and people refuse to play the parts we, we insist that they're taking. Yeah. So, um, so I think this speaking of others with openness and possibility, sometimes it's better to think of it as thinking of the situation with those people with openness and possibility, because 
who knows what can happen? Who knows when a person might have a change of heart, a complete transformed view, who, who might suddenly regret everything they've done? I mean, <clears throat> my own dad was a, you know, a Navy officer. Everything was by the book. Everything was like very, very rigid. Very, he was very severe. He was very strict with us and, um, and very much a disciplinarian. And as he got older, I still had that dad in my head, you know, um, and but he softened, he got mellow, he got filled with remorse. He was, you know, his innate kindness came out. He was like a completely different person than the person I had in my head. I didn't do a lot of revision around, you know, how I related to him because he wasn't the same person at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that process had been ongoing for quite a long time before I recognized it. You know, I'm sorry to say, yeah, you know, like, and I was still having these, you know, conversations in my head with a cartoon, basically. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and it directly relates to the, pre the precept that we have for this, this month on um, the practice of supporting life. I take up the way of supporting life because that is life supporting, right? To speak of others with openness and possibility is supporting and, and having some trust in the um, potential of each person no matter how um, far downstream we may believe they are. So, yeah, I think this is, um, and, and it's interesting to me that, uh, that Rosetto has put this precept last in her book, right? Um, I find that very interesting, but she feels that it's so, um, it's so profound that people have to work their way up to it. My sense of it is, it's the precept that all the other precepts unfold out of. So, um, but this practice of supporting life, I mean, this is a really, uh, this is a really profound practice. And we have a lot of simplistic ideas about what that means, right? Should you kill a cockroach? Shouldn't you kill a cockroach? You know, it's like, it's, we end up in these uh, endless hypothetical, you know, and even real situations where we're, uh, we're tying ourselves in knots about this. Each of these precepts, actually. We want to know where the boundaries are. We want to know, you know, is this inbounds? Is this out of bounds? Um, what about a virus? Is a virus actually alive? Is it killing a virus if you take a vaccine? Hmm. Right? Or if you, if you take medicine? So, I think this is really a, um, the mother of all precepts, basically. This is precept of uh, not taking life and not harming. Yeah. So did you work with a little bit with this, this um, practice of supporting life? We're still working on the previous precepts since they are all cumulative. I've actually been chewing on this one for some time um, in about the last uh, year. And then it kind of, I put it on the back burner for the rest of the precepts. Um, I went full vegan and then backed off because of um, nut sensitivities where I kept having accidental exposures in public. And that's a bad time. I don't recommend it. Um, and yet I'm still thinking, you know, Kind of where in the ecology of things do humans lay? Um, what does it mean? Like, how does war factor in? How does, um, you know, 
like the work, the positive work of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation versus their tremendous investment in fossil fuels, the balance of all of these various different things, um, where does that kind of put us? And the most positive and aspirational way I could see it was we're kind of, the, this is the most organized that carbon has ever been on the planet in a certain sense. If you make the assumption that humans are part of the leading edge of the ecology of the planet, that there is some reasonable merit in human existence, which, you know, it's a conducive for karma or uh, for working through karma or whatever the case may be. Sure, 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 sure. I, but I can't get into all that theory. I just have to wonder, like, if it came down to, like, for how many strangers would I lay my life down? You know, for how many crows would I, you know, lay my life down? That type of, of, of hypothetical that you were discussing when um, in reality, it's like, what is it protecting and what is it supporting? Has whatever I've ended up? Um, sometimes I'm in that equation, sometimes I'm not. Um, I've recently been seeing silverfish and it is a nightmare and I am in that hypothetical space right now. Like, do I deal with these silverfish that could attack my books and other stuff or, or what? It's been, uh, it's been quite a lot. Um, the chapter has been, been helpful to that, but I'm still, hmm, hypotheticals. Yeah, you mentioned that. And it's gotten so complicated because, and I went through this just yesterday, the significance of buying an apple. I was holding that apple and wondering, and it's organic and all, but how much harm was behind in that particular apple through its transportation, through its, you know, agricultural practices and pay. It's so much more complicated in the world today where we don't see all of the harm that is behind something as simple as an apple sometimes, you know, much less these grander issues like Bill Gates and, the, and all the different sides of, of what he does, beneficial and maybe not so. So, yes, thank you for opening that up, that discussion. Yeah, and you discover there's no saintly place you can stand and be pure. Um, we're implicated in this world and all of its messiness and all of the uh, crazy trade-offs that we make to live a modern life. And we have to pay attention continually to the ways in which we can, uh, we can reduce the harm that we cause uh, and the ways in which we, uh, we are influenced by our attitudes and our beliefs, and to question some of those attitudes and beliefs is healthy. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, we're going to come to a position where we say, I won't even take a carrot out of the ground. Um, we, ha we have to understand that we're continually in a process of creation and destruction. We're part of that process of create creation and destruction. And I sometimes think, you know, as destructive as we've been on this planet, um, we're the only people who can undo the damage that's been done. And we're the only species. I don't think there's another species that's going to be able to remediate the damage that's been done. So while we're um, trying to sort out how to do that, uh, we want to minimize our, the harm that we're able to minimize and to, uh, and to question some of the things that we might feel um, 
we're entitled to or uh, that we can't escape causing harm through. So, uh, and so I think there's a good strong movement now of people who are doing just that. And for each person, we, this, is, this is our practice edge, right? Uh, it's, it's right there. Plenty of opportunities to practice. Right? And, and to know, oh, I'm not going to be able to get out of this. Um, the weight of the decisions that uh, I've made and that I've enabled uh, in supporting my life. I, I just, this is our, our ancient twisted karma that we vow every morning. So it would be lovely to be able to be so uh, completely non-harming that you could be confident that you weren't causing any harm in the world at all because you weren't participating in any systems and you weren't uh, driving on any roads and you weren't, you know, like you just were completely separate, but then you're completely separate from the world. And that's not our vow. So, yeah, even if you were off the grid in Wyoming and living off the land, um, you still, you're, you're gonna find that you need batteries for your flashlight or whatever, you know, like there's no, um, there's no special place that you can be where you're entirely non-harming. So it's about coming to terms with that and noticing, you know, ways where you make that trade off um, and asking yourself, is this necessary? Is this a necessary trade-off? So I had this whole issue with, uh, which I talked through with Joko when we had to get rid of the rats in the house, you know? And, um, and it was an old, because it's an old house, there were lots of openings, lots of places for rats to get in. It was really, uh, it was an ongoing challenge for about four years to get the rat remediation in there first person I called, you know, and asked about this, I said, well, is there, is there some way that you could humanely trap these rats and take them away? And there's just like a long, long pause. And then this voice said, well, ma'am, where do you think they'd be more desirable? Which is a really important question, right? So, uh, so we, we do our best and we know that it's, nothing that we do is going to make us completely free from causing harm. But also the positive side of this is the side of supporting life right, in the ways that we can. <clears throat> Whether it's plants or trees or other people or, and, th and that means you have to have a certain trust in life, right? You have to have a certain confidence that life is unfolding itself in exactly the way it needs to. We may not be to our liking. We may, we may prefer it to be otherwise. But there's so much um, teaching and so much teaching in the way life is unfolding itself. So this is where I think these small experiments in mindfulness can be useful. Um, can you uh, do little experiments that, uh, 
that, it, that sort of reveal the um, ways that you might mitigate some of the harm that you're doing? Or can you, can you imagine, for example, um, uh, a week without plastic? And then see what does that experiment turn up? What do you discover? Um, <clears throat> so small experiments in mindfulness are useful and also in working with parts. So what are the parts that come up when you, even when you contemplate this precept, right? What parts do you notice it? Part that's like, well, you know, that would be really inconvenient or I really don't want to have to do that. Or what, you know, what, what, what parts get activated or triggered when you think about this? And particularly um, connecting with that deeper, largest self, the Buddha heart and mind, and seeing what is our deepest intention, what is our deepest aspiration in the situation, right? So does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I wish there was some way that we could um, we could ensure that we really weren't harming anything. And I think, I, I often think about the, uh, the Native Americans who think in terms of seven generations ahead, uh, or in Japan where they think of 150 years, their business plans are 150 year plans. Um, and they're thinking about what, what impact, what they're doing is gonna have in 150 years. So we, and that's, you know, that's roughly seven generations. So, so when you think about that, it's, uh, um, that, that longer view uh, helps us um, consider things a little bit differently and understand our, uh, our situation a little bit differently. So, so the, uh, the work with IFS, the work with Hakomi, and then this uh, residing in this Buddha heart and mind um, as a, to me, this is a, uh, such a spacious and caring place, uh, but it's not bound up with a lot of stories about how to be a good person or, you know, what's, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, ego-driven agendas or what would make me feel good about myself. Um, yeah. So this Rosetto's process of engaging the observer, deepening the observation. And then noticing the requirements that I put on myself, the requirements that I put on the world. Um, this is really important. And the precept does a kind of a stop sign, a pause, right? And, and then the dead spot, this, this, what's happening? Yeah. And then we, we can notice when we're, we have these requirements, this, this should be like this, this shouldn't be like this, right? So she has some examples in the chapter that are really um, large scale things, you know, like abortion and war and suicide and euthanasia um, and how to understand how we're implicated in, uh, in various forms of harming. Not just personally, um, as we did with the rat project um, but also um, collectively with war and environmental degradation and um, species extinction. This all caused by collective blindness, greed, and, and, uh, and hatred. But then there's also structural issues. And a lot of times when people are thinking about the precepts, they're not thinking in terms of large-scale systems or structures. 
um, systems like governments or uh, school systems or you know these larger systems that we're part of but that we feel uh, we have very limited agency in terms of transforming those systems they're just so big the scale is so big and our position is usually not one where we have that kind of influence necessarily so this means that sometimes we're unaware of losses that are invisible or slow acting like climate change because we don't focus at that level or we tend to focus at the individual level this person's pissing me off you know and we tend to focus that you know that way um, and we get preoccupied with that and that means that we accept and um, and cooperate with systems that are that are creating harm so so it's it's very important for us to be aware of that too because where we do have some slight influence or some leverage this is why it's important for people to vote this is why it's important for people to turn out when there are um, you know marches that support life so uh, it doesn't matter that your voice is small it's really important that you use it well so um, so that it's at least uh, on the side of good. So this way of supporting life is, um, has a lot of dimensions, I think. We tend to think in very individualistic dimensions, but there's a lot of larger dimensions to it. Um, and, and it might be on the scale of your neighborhood, you know, it might be, but we tend to not to think in those uh, larger systemic ways. It doesn't come naturally for most people. And, and, and there's probably lots of reasons for that, you know, like, Oh yeah. If, if somebody is determining whether to save the tree or feed their family, you know, by cutting the tree down and maybe putting a cow out there, they're probably going to try to feed their family. Right. I mean, there's like a, I've heard yeah. po poverty is one of the biggest. Yeah. It's understandable reasons. in a way. Yeah. But, but a lot of that damage isn't really done by a lonely farmer with his family to feed. You know, a lot of it is done by large corporate farming, you know, um, interests yeah. that are providing for McDonald's, you know, like, so, um, so those are the larger structural things that are harder to change. You might be able to talk a farmer into growing sugar cane instead of whatever, um, but you, the larger corporate interests, you have so little leverage with, right? So um, the way money and power is, uh, is mobilized, um, it, we, have, we have to recognize we're limited in what we can do, but we should do what we can do uh, to help remediate the harm or to help uh, in Joanna Macy's terms, I think this is a really helpful way to think about it. There are three big inter, interlocking circles. And um, so there are three big domains of, uh, of action when you think about the large scale issues we, we have to deal with. The first one is stopping the harm. So there are people who work on blocking um, the harm that's being done. So they'll lie down in front of a bulldozer, or, or they'll do legislation that stops, that's stopping the harm. Um, but that alone is not enough because you lose a lot of battles, you get burned out, you know, um, you're up against forces that are more powerful than you are sometimes. So, and also 
they're entrenched. So what you need to provide is some structural alternatives. That's the second area. So if you don't want people to use fossil fuels, they still need to get around. How are they going to be moved, right? So you think, oh, okay, so electric cars are part of a structural change, right, to use of fossil fuels in, in automobiles. But that alone is not enough because you also have to make sure that people will actually adopt the structural change. And that means a change in consciousness and that's the third big sphere. So change of consciousness is what helps people envision new structural solutions or envision ways to stop the damage or envision ways to um, bring into being the world we wanna bring into being. So changes in consciousness are necessary so that there are enough people who are willing to adopt a structural change, for example. And there are enough people who are willing to stop people, go to stockholder meetings or whatever, and stop the people who are harming. So, um, so I think that's a helpful way to think about it. And it's, helpful, it's helped me a lot because I realized, oh, I've moved through those domains in my life. You know, I started out anti-war protester, you know, on the ramparts and trying to stop the harm. And then, um, and then uh, I, um, I could see that I was very ineffectual in that, by the way. Um, so, and that even me with a whole bunch of other college students, very ineffectual. So then I moved into structural change, which I felt was really um, the role of education to help foster structural change. And then, uh, and then I realized, oh, it's really where I really want to be working is changes in consciousness. So when people are waking up, um, that's a change in consciousness. They start to be able to be conscious. Of course, it's very painful to become conscious. Most people are, um, are making themselves unconscious for a reason because it's painful to recognize what's happening. So, but it's probably always better to be awake than it is to be asleep and blindsided by everything. So, but, I, but for me, that's a helpful way to think about it when we want to think about supporting life. Um, those are the the fundamental domains to work in. And you can see, oh, my work is primarily here. My work is primarily here. This is the most important area for me. And there's some overlap, you know, there's some overlap between all of these areas are all intersecting. So there are even some places right in the center where you're uh, blocking harm, providing structural alternatives and changing consciousness at the same time. So, yeah. yeah. So. I don't think we can hear you, Troy. You're muted. All right, there we go. There you go. Um, <laughs> I, I like this, this line in the book on, on page 174. Perhaps the real enemy of peace is our stubborn insistence that our solution is the only solution to a particular conflict. And then at the bottom, it says stopping war begins with ourselves. Yeah. Um, and, and at the same time, I, I mean, when we talk about systemic, like the industrialized complex, I mean, if, if you've read any, oh, Derek Jensen and some of the strong environmental people, I, I mean, every time you fill your car, you're causing harm, right? I mean, we, we know what being right. connect, but yet at the end of the day, how many of us are riding our bikes and, and, and I mean, even, even a shift to Tesla is not doing a huge shift to improve the environment. You're still going to, you're substituting one addiction for another, right? I mean, we, or one way to harm the earth to another kind. Maybe it's less, but it's still harming. 
And so yeah. um, there, there's just so many ways in which we are harming the planet. Um, and yet we refuse to change. Even if we're quote awake and we have a different kind of consciousness, it, we, we still just go ahead and keep doing it. Um, very hard to change systems, isn't it's it? It's extreme. And, and not only this, but, but our participation in them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because, because for many people, they'll tell you, what's the alternative? So you have to have alternatives, right? You need, a, you need structural alternatives because what people will say is, but I have to get to work or, you know, um, yeah. But, but at the end of the day, what, what is it the most that we're, we're addicted to in our society is comfort. I mean, what do you mean? I, I can help the plan by riding my bike to work every day. And I could, I could start doing, making a lot of shifts that would help, right? I mean, we know that. But by, by and large, most of us will not be willing to make those shifts um, unless we have to for some reason. And, and, and whether it's a change of consciousness or not, we rarely do something just on our own accord because it's the right thing to do when it comes to divorcing ourselves from the systems, the mass systems of destruction. I yeah, just, I think it's very difficult. It's very, it's it's very, very, difficult. very challenging. But I'm, I'm heartened by some things that are shifts that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. Um, and two of them are gay marriage and curbside composting. You know, those are like, okay, I never thought that would happen. So I'm wondering if we're not poised to for some larger transformational changes that are a result of people's um, being stopped by this virus and forced to really look at what's happening, look at, and, and think about what's happening in a different way. I, I think we are. Uh, you know, you look back at the history of the Spanish flu, a lot of changes came through after the Spanish flu. I mean, that's right. Some, some people believe it had a, a tremendous impact on culture afterwards. And so I'm, I'm hopeful, like, for example, maybe we have a shift in, in our e economic system. I mean, how many people in America think there is no better way to conduct financial ways of being in America unless it's through capitalism, right? I mean, that's, yeah. Well, there, there's an opening and a lot, there's a lot of stuff on the table now from people like uh, Rutger Bregman um, uh, and those conversations that used to be so considered so radical and so far off the map are suddenly in, on everybody's, you know, front and center agendas. So in Europe, they're talking about a universal basic income, seriously, not, it's not a, so I think I think we can we see the potential for some real um, rethinking of things. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and in this country we have uh, Garel Perovitz with and the Next System Project, which is very interesting. Um, what was his name? Garel Perovitz. Um, yeah, and he, so he has a book called Beyond Capitalism, and he has a book called What Then Must We Do, and he's very very um, he's a brilliant mind. Uh, but he believes that the next, and I think this is, this is really what will help sustain life. He, he believes that the next systems will be cooperatives. Mm. 
Yeah. Just sent his name in the chat, Troy, just because I also tried to look him up when I heard Peck talking about it, and I Googled a bunch of really wrong names wrong name. okay. before I actually got it. So I sent it in the chat. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I, heard him, I heard him speak here. Um, we have um, Cooperation Texas, which is an incubator for cooperatives and has been very successful in training people and educating people how to form cooperatives. So um, he came and gave a talk, uh, and that really spawned that movement. Um, and it's been really successful in, um, in helping to educate and foster cooperatives of maids and um, landscape workers. Um, so, yeah. And he's also been really effective in taking sole proprietors and helping them, uh, when they're ready to retire, sell their business to their employees and then serve as an advisor. So then those, those um companies become worker-owned uh, cooperatives and, um, and the previous, you know, boss who wants to retire can still serve in kind of an advisory capacity and stay connected to the business that he or she built and loves. So, yeah, so I thought that was kind of interesting. So all, there are a lot of innovative ways of thinking about that that are, uh, that are showing up. I want to add to just the hope of, of, of the benefit of really looking into something that one is passionate about. Like, for example, with, with me, I just decided I was interested in climate change. I was interested in reducing carbon output. And then that took me to like thinking about how do we organize our cities? Why do we have to drive as much as we do to work? And then I started thinking about what's the policy for how we lay out transportation and land use. And then that took me to serve on the planning commission and I was a neighborhood president. And then I started going to these national organizations on that. I started going to conferences in Washington, DC. I started learning about po parking policy and you can go so deep in one area. And then it takes me all the way back to, you know, eventually I'm driving one of the most foremost experts on parking policy to do uh, a session for city policymakers in San Marcos. And I put together a session where uh, city council members and county commissioners had uh, someone from San Francisco come in and talk about parking policy in Austin. So it's like, you can really like mm. do something that is tied to your passion. It's not, you know, related to anything like that, but tied to what we each really think that we're interested in and just kind of take down whatever road you happen to find that yeah. you do. And I think you can really make a big difference on whether it be a local level, which I particularly gravitated to, or some sort of other uh, level of policymaking. Um, and it's like that expression, like when we say, uh, if you don't think you can make a, a big difference, uh, try to sleep at night with a mosquito in your room. Yeah. Um, right. You know, it's that, that sort of level of thinking, like you can really make a difference on a, on a, on just one person, you know? Um, you can. Yeah. yeah. And that's really a good example. It's a great example. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, thinking at all levels of scale and across time scales about harm. Um, it's really important because a lot of, you know, a lot of the harm that's happening is slow moving. So we were not necessarily tuned into it. Um, so we have to think in a different time scale. 
Uh, and that, that is where I think our Buddhist practice is very useful because we get comfortable thinking in vast scales, both time and space, right? Um, and it takes us out of our very uh, narrow, typical narrow views of our own little self-centered concerns. So, so, okay, so just for a couple of minutes, I want to say something about right use of power, which we read um, the first 100 pages of right use of power book, but I wanted to point to um, also to the handout that is on the Precepts website. So you do you all know about the Precepts website, right? Apamana.org slash precepts hyphen study. There's a lot of materials there, but but in particular, the handout on the, um, uh, on the right use of power, you'll see that's a handout that I use in workshops. So it's a sort of a compressed, uh, condensed version that's, that's uh, easy to access. Did you find it? I'll put it in the uh, study. I'll put it in the chat window. Oops. The one that says RUP workshop handouts? Yeah. So hold on. Um, yeah. So I think it's maybe 17 or 18 pages long. Um, and it's sort of the key handouts for this, uh, for this work with right use of power. What really intrigued me about this work when I first encountered it was I had a kind of um, impression about power as invariably negative, and that power was not something you wanted, that was something that you wanted to avoid as much as possible because it was so corrupting and because it was so evil and toxic and all of that. So it was very um, surprising to me to encounter this work on power as, um, uh, as a powerful positive presence. And so, uh, so I, I was enchanted with uh, Cedar's, uh, a little bit of Cedar's teaching that Flint had introduced us to in the priest training at AZC. So I brought her here to my house, actually, to do a full training. And that's where I really, really got interested in how, how this new way of thinking about power could be very, very helpful for people in all, all kinds of walks of life. So... Uh, so you'll see from the, the handout, I'm not going to keep you past 8.30, but you'll see from the handout some um, sort of overview, but the, uh, the book is very good, and I really, really recommend spending some time with it. I mean, just take your time and don't be in a big hurry. It, there's a lot there to think about, and when I teach this, it's a two-day training for the basic training and another uh, three or four days for the teacher training. Um, but I have been doing a lot of this training in spiritual communities of all different uh, faith traditions. And uh, at um, San Francisco Zen Center, we train 21 teachers in uh, how to teach great use of power. They were very taken with it. Now they use it in all of their meetings and everything. So maybe very helpful for folks um, to have an opportunity to, to um, dive into this uh, work on right use of power. To not use your power when you have power and what power you have 
is an abuse of power in itself. So shrinking back from using your power is itself an abuse of power. Mm. So we have all faced situations where we maybe should have stepped up and said something or we should have done something, but we didn't, you know, and, um, and that, uh, and you recognize that's a, that's a way of harming also. So power is also responsibility and care. And, um, and in the, this training, we talk about three kinds of power, three different forms of power, personal power, which every single person has, which unfortunately we can't, I can't demonstrate to you the way I usually do, which is all you have to do is go and stand a little bit too close to somebody. And you'll see you have power just by virtue of being a human being in a human body. Right. Um, the second one is role power. It's a power you have by virtue of having a certain role, a teacher, a doctor, you know, you have this particular, it's a culturally assigned role. And in that role, you're a therapist. The other person is a client or you're, there's, um, there is a power differential there. Um, and so, and, but that's, it's not a simplistic power differential. There's a power differential. There's a power up and power down position, but it's more complicated than that. And then finally there's status power, which is a different kind of power. It's another power add on. And it has to do with something, not that's a function of your role, but a function of, um, for example, you're married or you're not married or you're black or you're white, or you're, these are sort of unchangeable. They're not a function of you having a particular official role or position, but um, you're old or young. And, and, and I think of these, the status form of power as being situationally determined, whether it's a power up or power down position. So if you're um, a white person, you may have a position of privilege in some neighborhoods but you may be in a power down position in other neighborhoods, right? So, um, so the issue is really thinking about these three different ways that power gets mobilized and gets used. Uh, and so I like the way Cedar has taught it as, as um, you know, standing in your strength with heart. And it's all very heart centered. It comes out of the Hakomi training. And so it's, it's a very heart centric um, uh, form of understand way of understanding power. So, okay. So uh, in June, we'll have uh, a class in which we sort of review uh, the other precepts, but also handle the precept, do not disparage the triple treasure, which is the traditionally the last precept, but isn't in Rosetto's book. And we'll, do, we'll also have the Rosetto conclusion. And so please read also uh, Right Use of Power, maybe up to page 216. Um, and bring questions, by all means, bring questions. And take a look at the handout. The handout is um, uh, what I use to accompany the book when I am teaching, doing teaching and training. Uh, so, and it has the values, the foundational values of the right use of power training, and it has uh, the core concepts that we use that we talk about, uh, including the power differential and the shame dungeon and all kinds of fun things. And, and importantly, we'll talk about repair, which is something most people never get any teaching in when they're young, but it's how to, how to affect a repair when some harm has been done. So much as we're trying to be non-harming, we say the wrong thing, we forget somebody's birthday, we do all, you know, 
there's all kinds of things in daily living that, um, and, and to learn how to do a repair, how to remediate harm is, is a very important thing that we should be teaching kids in school, but they don't ever get taught that. So. I'll say, um, having done a right use of power training with you, Peg, that I, one, I find the, uh, I find it so useful, but also that I rem remember first reading the book and, um, and having trouble kind of breaking through the format of the book. Yeah. Um, so I just want to offer en encouragement to folks because it's, there's so much here and uh, I think that you can get into it and I know that we'll talk about it and yeah. it'll, it'll become clear. Yeah. We'll spend a good chunk of time next time talking about rate use of power and, um, and, and answer questions that you might have. If you want a um, quick overview, the first thing in that, um, I think it's the first, the first page, main page of that uh, handout is first there's something about the Buddha's gifts, uh, the precepts as gifts. And then I think um, there's the, uh, I wrote a two page, two, is it a two page, maybe two page, um, introduction, maybe one page, introduction to um, Cedar had asked us in the teacher training to write a little something about what we thought right use of power was, and that's what I wrote. So that's, and it's sort of an overview. It's a short, really short overview. So everybody is in different kinds of power relations everywhere they go, and oftentimes they're oblivious to what's really happening in those relationships. So hopefully this will be helpful in illuminating in those, in those relationships and enable people to be, to really um, express their, their power in a way that is beneficial, whether they're in a power down position, a power up position, or just any, any position at all. So, yeah. Okay. So, so let's stop for tonight, unless you have any uh, additional questions, I'm happy to respond to. I just have one minor question about something that you said. You had mentioned that Texas Cooperative Association or something like that. I think it's called Cooperation Texas. Got it. Thanks. Um, and I, they were, uh, they were over on Maynard, I think. I'm trying to remember, it was quite a long time ago when I saw Gar Alperovitz, but I was completely galvanized by what he was, what he was explaining. Um, he's been an advisor to presidents and governors and uh, understands financial policy at the highest levels. Uh, so it's a great mind. And yet he's talking about things that are right on the ground, right? You know, so very practical. Is he an economist by training or? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and just, it's just, and there's a very large website. I think it's called nextsystem.org. Um, that is all, um, uh, education and papers. Um, it's a kind of a giant think tank by high level policymakers <laughs> about, um, issues in education. And so that's broken down by topic. Uh, so it's not just economics. It's all about how to, you know, um, Garel Peravitz's premise is communism is a failed experiment. Capitalism is a failing experiment. If you don't want communism and you don't want capitalism, what do you want? Most people can't answer that question. 
So this is about that next system project. Hmm. I just sent the link in the chat. Pardon me? Great. I just sent the link in the chat to that website. Oh, okay, great. Thanks. Thanks so much for that. Yeah. yeah. All right. So there's a lot of great things to read on that site. And um, yeah. All right. All right. See you next time. Yes. Thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah I've had this for. website bookmarked since you first talked about it. What? I've had this website bookmarked since I heard you first talk about it. It's interesting <laughs> to come back it is to. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. All right. Take care. Bye, everyone. Thanks. Good everyone. to see everybody. Yes. Take care. Keep your spell. <laughs>